Hello and welcome to this new edition of Café Klingendaal, the podcast series of the Klingendaal Institute. My name is Brigitte Decker, researcher at Klingendaal, and I am joined here today by Dominique Morsi and René Couperas. Mr. Morsi is special advisor to the Institute Montagne and visiting professor at King's College London. He is also author of several widely acclaimed books, among which The Geopolitics of Emotion, How Cultures of Fear, Humiliation and Hope are Reshaping the World. Mr. Kuperis is senior researcher at Klingendal and visiting fellow at the Germany Institute of the University of Amsterdam. He also writes a column for the Dutch daily newspaper, the Volkskrant. First of all, thank you both for joining me here today. Uh, today we are going to talk about the rise of populism mainly. Uh, and in the last decade, we have seen the rise of populism in many parts across the world. President Trump, Duterte and Bolsonaro are prominent examples of this, but also in Europe, populist parties are gaining more and more support from citizens. We can, for example, point at the FPÖ in Austria, Liga in Italy, uh, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, and of course the PVV in the Netherlands. And all those parties have done relatively well in recent elections and even risen to power in, for example, Poland and Austria, and also Italy, of course. Uh, the rise is also relevant for the upcoming elections in May, where many expect populist parties to do relatively well. Mr. Moisey, how do you explain this continuous rise of right-wing populist parties throughout the European Union? People are angry. They tend to uh, accuse the elites for uh, the situation of frustration and sometimes humiliation in which they find themselves. They are afraid of the future. They are afraid of the other. They have a nostalgia for a past which they, in some case, idealized. And therefore, they go to uh, the exact opposite of what they have. And there's also, and this is even more dangerous, a certain temptation for authoritarian regime. They are longing for strong personalities. Uh, they say the uh, old classical liberal democracy no longer functions. And this is where we are. And of course, uh, the financial an economic crisis that started in 2008 and 2007 uh, played a big role uh, in in the rise of their frustrations. And would you also ascribe those economic crises, those financial crises, but also the, the anger of the people as the crisis of liberal democracies? What do you think is really the cause of that crisis well, of I liberal democracy? I, I think they see the collapse of capitalism and the collapse of liberal democracy as uh, coming together. Uh, they turn towards the world and say, well, it doesn't work. Uh, look, uh, it works better in China, it works better in uh, Russia. Uh, I remember being in Italy, in the south of Italy, and uh, speaking to a, a Turkish man who was running my hotel, and he says, well, no, Italy will do fine because we have an Italian Erdogan mm-hmm. in the personality of Salvini. So that's mm-hmm. part of the nostalgia for uh, the strong leader. 
Do you agree with this, Mr. Kupiras? I, I agree mostly with the analysis of Mr. Mwazi. I like very much his focus on emotions. I think that's very important in this. It's more a cultural psychological phenomenon, the rise of populism, the fear, the anger, than a socio-economic phenomenon. Because what's puzzling me is that we have right-wing populist movements in the most prosperous countries of the world. In, I call it sometimes a revolt in paradise. Look at Switzerland. Look at Austria, look at Finland, look at Sweden, look at even in Norway, which is one of the most prosperous countries in the world. And there is this revolt of fear, revolt of anger. And it has to do that people feel very insecure about the future. Today, these are very prosperous welfare societies. And if you look at the data, the statistics, you see why are these people complaining? But they don't complain about the actual situation, they complain about the future they feel and sense. And that, I think, explains why in the most prosperous, most equal societies in Europe, still there are right-wing populist movements. And this is puzzling me, because it's hard to tackle. Not all societies are um, equal, not all societies are following the pattern of Nordic Europe, where... Uh, the gap between the very rich and the very poor is relatively small. Netherlands is part of that uh, Nordic Europe yeah. up to a point. But there's a very uh, big populist movement. But there's a very big populist Why? movement. Yeah? Uh, but there are countries, uh, Anglo-Saxon countries like uh, Great Britain in Europe, the United States, yes. where there has been an explosion yes. of inequalities. Yes. So that this, uh, and inequalities is not only a statistical phenomenon, it's uh, subjective perception. Oh, yes. Uh, you, you see that the gap between you and the very rich is increasing. You may get less poor yourself, but you're more frustrated by the fact that your neighbor is doing infinitely better day by day. That's true. And what you said about Populism in paradise, there's an element of truth, of course, in it. But all revolutionary phenomenon in history, I mean, I start with the French Revolution, have not been done by the most desperate, but by the rising expectations, but by the relatively affluent. Uh, In a way to rebel, uh, you must know that you have something to eat in the uh, evening. Yeah. Uh, the poorest one are usually yeah. not making revolution, but even if they explode yeah. from time. But it's true for the populists as well. Eh? The electorate of the right-wing populist parties are the lower middle class. It's not the precariat. Eh? It's the lower middle class who feel squeezed between these elites and between the new incoming migrants, for instance, or the lower strata. And it's fear for social degradation. Eh? That's a very strong element in history and sociology. And that's, that's what's behind this revolt, that people have the feeling, can I, do I belong to the new world of globalization, multiculturalism, of knowledge-based economy for the higher academic professionals, or do I get back into another world? Is the future for me and for my kids, or is the future only for the successful higher educated people? That's, that's I think, a very deep cleavage in our society, which has to do with this concept of deplorables, yeah, which Hillary Clinton mm. used for the understrata in our society, and that's, that's the humiliation you are talking about, yeah, this, this very deep uh, feeling it, of humiliation. I think fear, humiliation and hope uh, all translate a certain relationship with the concept of time. 
in the case of hope, uh, you are convinced that today is not bad, but that tomorrow will be better. <laughs> yes. In the concept of fear, you realize that tomorrow will definitely be worse than today. And in the world of humiliation, there's no future. No, 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 uh, and, and, and so uh, these are important uh, elements. And it's really interesting because in March 2017, when our Prime Minister Mark Rutte uh, won the elections, he said the right type of populism has won. And doesn't that show indeed that populism is something of all days and ages? That it's rather a symptom of the crisis of liberal democracy than a cause to the crisis of liberal democracy? Well, it's both a symptom and a cause. Uh, it, it, it is a symptom if everybody was happy. Uh, we wouldn't be witnessing uh, this crisis. Mm. But uh, the arrival uh, in position of power of people like Vittor Orban in Hungary or Matteo Salvini in Italy are deeply aggravating the crisis of liberal democracy to the point where uh, countries like Italy, Hungary, the United States are closer to be illiberal democracies than liberal democracies. I think we should be careful in making a difference between good populism and bad populism. Mm -hmm. That's, I think it is a bit too simple. I understand populism, I think it's a very important alarm signal for what's going wrong in society, but populism has also a very nasty dimension as an overlap with nationalism, with fascism even, eh, with the dark pages of European history are also coming back into this whole ideology of populism. Authoritarianism, strong leader, eh, longing for a strong leader. We are returning also to the bad ideas of the pre-war uh, period of Europe. And I think we should be very uh, alarmed yeah. about that as well. No, I, I fully agree with that. Uh, there are people um, who are equating uh, Orban and Macron in France, mm -hmm. saying they are they represent two kinds of populism. Yeah. I, I strongly resent uh, that comparison. Uh, you may criticize President Macron, and, and in many cases you're right, but to accuse him of being a populist in the sense of Salvini and Orban mm -hmm. is wrong, uh, because uh, populist leaders are trying to impose their visions on uh, their opponents uh, to the point of discrediting them in uh, non-traditionally normal manners. Uh, and the rule of law uh, is not threatened in France. It is clearly threatened in countries like Hungary or Poland with the independence of the judiciary really at stake. I agree with this very much, because one of the dangers of populism is that it is anti-pluralist. Yeah. And uh, populist leaders say, I represent the voice of the people. And everyone who is not agreeing with me is an enemy of the people. Yeah. And this, this is a very dangerous way of thinking and, and, and of anti-pluralist tendencies within populism, which are very anti-democratic in its essence. And I think that's, that's why Orban, or an authoritarian leader, and a presidential-style uh, president like Macron cannot be compared. And to overcome this crisis of negative populism, so to say, 
You mentioned uh, lucidity, clarity and courage and modesty. A lot of hopeful words. Do, do you think it also helps in overcoming the anger of the people? Can it help, for example, in European politics to adhere to those words? Well, I'm choosing these words because I start by saying what we are witnessing is, of course, a political, social, economic crisis. But it is, above all, a crisis of ethics. And I'm looking at what we did wrong by saying that we started with arrogance towards others and complacency towards ourselves. We have to do exactly the opposite. Modesty towards others and ambition for ourselves. And, and this is why I think clarity and courage are needed to transmit that message to uh, citizens, uh, to the public opinion. It's uh, not easy, but if you start by saying it's a lost battle, we've lost already, if you are uh, accepting defeat, uh, you are going to have defeat. Uh, it becomes so a self-fulfilling prophecy. It, it becomes mm. a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm very critical about populism, but I'm also very critical about elite behavior. Yeah. The elites made huge mistakes in the last decades. We have become, there has been a more selfish elites, more selfish than in the 50s or in the 60s. And we are paying a price for that. So fighting populism is also self-criticism of the elites, self-criticism of people like us. What went wrong? What did, what did we wrong in the last decades in terms of redistribution, equality, in terms of um, caring for the society as a whole? Well, that, I think these are very critical remarks we should make in our own political system to, to find the causes of populism. We have an unembedded capitalism, all these kind of, these neoliberal tendencies of the last decades. They have gone over the top and by that we destroyed the social contract which was underpinning the post-war welfare state societies. And, and populism is an alarm signal that something went wrong, that the social contract has to be restored. Yeah, because that's, that's my biggest worry. The, the magic of Europe, of France, of the Nordics, of Northwestern Europe, is that this was a European, the middle-class society, where there were not big divides between the elites and the non-elites. We, we never talked about elites. Eh? But after these decades of neoliberalism, now we have a division between elites and non-elites. But the magic of our societies was we, were, we are all more or less middle class. And that's, that's under, at stake at the moment. Yes, it's interesting that you mention dividing society. Because last year you said that in 2018, uh, climate and climate change and how to battle climate change would be the new divisive issue in the European Union. Mm -hmm. Well, as we all have seen, there are now a lot of uh, debates ab about this topic, also uh, the French Yellow Fest protests, and in the Netherlands, climate has been an intense topic of public debate. Mm -hmm. So, in this respect, what do you expect for 2019, and what should be the political answer, perhaps, to mm -hmm. even on European level? I call climate, or the energy transition, I call it the new class war. Yeah, because, you see, in terms of worldview, that there's a strange division in our society. You have people who are worried about migration and Islam. Those are the lower educated. And you have people who are worried about climate change and, and, and Europe, and those are the higher educated. It's a very strange division of labor, which is not very rational. So we're living in a very 
in the populist times, and, and, and for me, I think it's very risky to, to put into this, this society of fear, anger, and lack of trust, to expect that an energy transition, which is not evenly distributed, can work. And we are now entering a phase in which the energy transition is uh, introduced in an unfair, unequal way, and I, I worry about that. Yeah. And we have to restore confidence in the future, and confidence in a common future, and that, that has to be restored. Well, we, we have to say to the people that building walls mm. does not constitute an answer to climate change, mm. and that climate change affects everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, we are on the same boat, confronted with climate change, mm -hmm. except that some are even more exposed uh, than others because of their geography. Uh, and in fact, in the developed world, the Netherlands is more exposed than uh, mm -hmm. most European countries, uh, but uh, far away in Asia, uh, people uh, may have a choice between swimming and living uh, the place where they live. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the problem for Bangladesh. So, in a way, if we don't take climate change as the most vital issue of our time, we are betraying our children. Uh, we may even be betraying ourselves. And on that note, we have come to the end of this podcast. Thank you again for joining me today. We will make sure to follow this important topic in our Klingendal podcast. And if you want to stay up to date on Café Klingendal, please register for our newsletter at www.klingendal.org. <laughs>